Well, it's good to see everybody here today. This is uh, the day after the day. Yesterday was the full moon day of May, which was an auspicious day because that's the day the Buddha was born, the day he became enlightened, and the day he passed away. And we get to celebrate that all on one day. And how lucky are we? Now, people wonder why it's such a special day, and it took me a while to, to figure it out myself. You know, he woke up on that day. And, and what does that mean for us? For us, I think it means that he made suffering optional. Up until then, it wasn't. It was mandatory suffering and mandatory pain. Now we only have mandatory pain, unless you have a good hospital and doctor. So um, I posted this today, and it made a lot of sense to me. Uh, It says, I like to sleep. It's like being dead without the commitment. (laughs) And and sleep can be fun. It can be rejuvenating. And it gives us a glimpse into our future. I also posted this yesterday. Now, uh, one of my Facebook friends posted it, and of course I reposted it, and, and I just thought, this is like the most powerful thing I've read in a long time, and it's a writer uh, who, who lives in New York, and his, and his name, I, I'm not going to mess up the pronunciation, but his first initial is D as in David, and his last name is B as in boy, U-N-Y-A-V-O-N-G. And I think he might be Thai, but maybe not. And he wrote this. Pay attention to the gentle ones. The ones that can hold your gaze with no discomfort. The ones who smile to themselves while sitting alone in a coffee shop. The ones who walk as if floating. Take them in and marvel at them. Simply marvel. It takes an extraordinary person to carry themselves as if they do not live in hell. And I thought, yeah, L.A., man, living hell. (laughs) So I'm going to talk about suffering today, Uh, only because it's a good day to talk about suffering, because it's optional, and I'll talk about how that can be the case as well. And in the early Buddhist tradition, that we have, we've got eight ways to suffer. It's never just one. You know, we've got plenty of ways to suffer. So the first way we suffer is birth. And we're not talking about our parents and all the suffering they have to do with us. But we're talking about that's the start of our suffering in each lifetime. Now, they say suffering and, and self are connected in a very special way. And... No self, no problem. But we don't want to get rid of self. We just want to make self not self. And when we're born, it takes a few months for the, for the brain and the body to be strong enough to support a self, to support a separate identity. And, and, and that's where our issues begin because we start to have opinions and preferences. And those opinions and preferences can be important. They can drive our life into the direction we think it should go in. But we also find that birth leads us into sickness. 
Sickness is sure to follow birth. And we are sick in so many different ways. It's just amazing. And we have ways to sidestep the sickness. We have ways to deal with the sickness. We have ways to build our immune system so we won't get sick again. But we're always going to be sick our whole life. And we're always going to have accidents our whole life. And that sickness and those accidents will cause us to suffer. Now we come to old age. And you know what? Old age can be a problem. If you think it's a problem. Or it can be just the new you and the way you're relating to the world. And we have a fellow that lives at our meditation center. He's lived there for a lot of years. He's in his 60s now. And he was walking across the backyard to get into his car. And he seemed to be limping. And I said, what happened, Ron? What happened to your leg? He said, it's not my leg, it's my ankle. I said, what happened to your ankle, Ron? He says, I don't know. Now that's old age. You just don't know why the stuff happens when it does. And then you're sort of dealing with it until it goes away. And generally speaking, it will go away. It's not chronic. But while it's there, it's simply reminding you that as you age, you have more and more boundaries. You have to discipline yourself in not overdoing what you used to do as second nature. And then the mind. The mind. Now, two days ago, I was in the back feeding the cats, and I went in to get some more cat food, and somebody rang the doorbell of the Zendo. So I went to the door. This is probably a warning to anybody who might come to the Zendo. And I opened the door, and she said, Hi, do you remember me? And I looked at her as a complete stranger. I couldn't recall if I'd ever seen her before in my whole life. And she was so excited to see me, which gave me a hint that maybe she knew me in some capacity and was really glad to see me. And there I was just staring blankly at this stranger. Now, I'm assuming that it wasn't because of old age, but I was living in the present moment. And I had no past or future. And she was from the past, and therefore she wasn't part of the present. So she said, I was one of the students at UCLA when you were there with the Buddhist club 14 years ago. I said, hi. <laughs> I'm thinking 14 years ago. And, and she was a student, and now she's married with child. And I have gray hair, and we have all these things going on. And I just couldn't go back that far in that moment because I was feeding the cats. That needed to be accomplished. So she left in a rather disappointed way. She said, you don't remember me, do you? I said, well, you know, it's been a long day. And then I said, I bet she's a Facebook friend if she responded to me in that way. And I went on Facebook. She said what her first name was. I went and I found her and she was a Facebook friend. So I messaged her and apologized profusely for not recognizing her. I'm, I, you know, I'm really sorry, but it's been a really long time. I was feeding the cats and I was just sort of locked into what I was doing. So she said, well, next time I come over, I'll call first. Let you know. I'll prepare you. <laughs> so you can be ready to recognize me. <laughs> and we can have a conversation. 
So old age has plenty of challenges, our mind and our body, and, 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 and also our invisibility. I have become invisible. I, it's just the most fascinating thing to me. You know, 6'2", a little over 200 pounds, well, maybe more over 200 pounds. And I'm walking through the aisles of Food for Less, which is always busy now because they get the best cat food prices. And people are just like walking into me like they don't see me. <laughs> You know, and I'm thinking, you don't see me? How can you walk into me? Are they expecting me to move, or do I have? And so I'm just now readjusting, and then I'm standing at the, at the checkout line, and I'm not observed there either, you know. And, and sometimes the checker will just walk away and do something else. And I'm thinking, wow, is this what happens when you get old? People don't see you anymore? I don't know. So it's a way to suffer if you let it affect you in sort of a bad way. It's, it's the kind of thing that's normal and, and youth should be you know, cherished and observed and enjoyed. And old age has a place. It's off to the left, in the back. We, we, I, I talked about sickness already and now we have death. Things die all the time. Husbands die. Wives die, best friends die, cats die, you know, you'll die, plants die. All this stuff is dying all the time. And now we find ourselves in spring, which is the beginning of death, which is called birth and life. And it's everywhere. It's just an amazing time. I'm watching young people walking down our street and they're holding hands and, and they're, they're gazing into each other's eyes blankly. And I'm thinking, no, no, we have too many people already, please. We don't need more, you know. But we're going to have more because it's spring. And people are going to think it's love. It's not love, it's attachment. That's what nature does. It creates attachment. We find our mate and we replicate. And then about 20 years later, we just split and go our own ways once the kids have left. And, and that, that was, wow, that was so cool. What a great time that was to raise these children. And now I've got to go raise myself because everybody left. And how is that going to be? Can I still grow after all those experiences I had as a father and a husband or a mother or a wife? Can I still grow personally? Is there still time left for me to investigate who I really am? So this death thing seems to be the end of who we really are, but not for Buddhists, because death turns into birth again, which becomes the beginning of our suffering one more time. And then we die, and then we come back, and we suffer again. And we have this continual forever and ever train of birth and death. And there's only one way out, as far as I know, and that's nirvana. That's the, that's the end of our suffering forever. It's the end of birth, sickness, old age, and death. But we've just begun our adventure into suffering. Because the next way we suffer is not getting what we really want. And you know what? All of us are faced with that in our lifetime. There are certain things that we really want that there's no way to possibly have. And in Buddhist reality, there's no way to have anything anyway because it's, there's no ownership. 
there's just using and doing, and then it all changes, moment to moment. So all the things that I wanted, I wanted to have this and I wanted to have that, and 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 you know, and when I didn't get it, I felt like you know, why should everybody else have it and not me? What's wrong with me? Did I do something wrong not to deserve that? You know, and and it's just fascinating to see how we can beat ourselves up because we didn't get what we really wanted. But did we really need it? Probably not. We don't need much to have a life. But we may need a lot if we want to have the kind of life we think we want or should have. Now, how about getting the stuff that you really want? That's another way to suffer, too. You don't get it, you suffer. You do get it, and you suffer. And why is that? Because what you get is going to leave you. It's going to be taken away in permanence. There's no way to hold on to anything. There's no way to hold on to anything. Position, power, money, relationship, it all goes sooner or later. And are we going to have a closed hand and grasp and cling as it's being pulled out of our little clenched fist? Well, if we do that, we're going to suffer even more. We need to let it go. And that's the hard part. If you've ever been in a relationship and it was time for it to dissolve, were you ready to let it go? Could you do it with style and class? Or did you fight and resent and curse and want to hold on to even though the relationship itself was dead, but the, the thoughts of the relationship lived inside of you in a very real and powerful way. So the best advice I can give to anybody who's breaking up in a relationship is to help the other person pack. Just, do you know what I'm saying? It's been nice. Here you go. We're never ultimately going to be apart because all things are interconnected and interdependent. All you got to do is email me or call and we can talk. But we don't need to be in relationship anymore because we've always been in relationship since the beginning and will be until the end. It's just not what you think that relationship should be. It's what it is. Oh, okay. So getting what you want those things will always be taken away from you, you know? And even, even the subtle things, like I just pulled out the old tenor guitar, four strings, been playing it. How cool, some of the chords came back. Really nice, but you know, one day I won't be able to remember the chords, you know? And, you know. Until then, I'll just play. It gives my hands something to do. My ear, you know, sort of likes it when I'm right on. But one day my ear may be so deaf it can't hear it either. And then I'll be looking for the songbook and my eyes will be so bad I won't be able to read it. And then what am I going to do? Well, do we really have to do anything? Does it just sort of happen? Does our life just unfold for us and we just respond to our life and, and pretty soon the day is full and then the day's over? Do we need to plan our day? Do we need to make something out of our day? I have found, being in my line of work, that I, I do need to plan my day a little bit. I need to have a beginning. I need to get it started. And then from there, it takes on a life of its own. Can I do nothing? They say doing nothing is impossible. But people can do nothing all the time. You know, I mean, nothing is the ultimate goal of Zen. 
can you do nothing and get everything accomplished? Yes, you can, according to Zen. I love those concepts because they make no sense whatsoever. (laughs) Now, the hardest to understand, but the most important, the final one. And I was doing a little reading on the internet about this final one, and a lot of people don't get it. But they're not Buddhist, so there's probably no reason they should get it. It deals with the aggregates, the five aggregates. And it deals with the aggregates as being the reason self arises. And it also says every time self arises, there is suffering. Suffering. Again, every time self arises, there is suffering. So how does self arise? According to this model, it arises because of the five aggregates. Now, the five aggregates are form, sensation, perception, volition, and consciousness. One more time. Form, sensation, perception, volition, and consciousness. And now let me give you just a quick overview of what the heck that means. We don't have regular psychology in Buddhism because regular psychology is like 19th century, you know? I mean, it was way after the Buddha figured out what humans were. And so his, his psychology, if you want to call it that, is an empirical perspective. It's an inside look at what it means to be him. And what he noticed was there were five things that arose that created him. First of all, we have to have name and form, nama rupa. We have to have body and we have to have brain. If those two things are there, it'll work. Can't have self with just one or the other. Now, because we have form, body, we have mind, we have consciousness, a rudimentary consciousness, basic consciousness, like a blackboard waiting to be filled in, written on. Okay, it's just there all the time because the body's there. And so those things work. And we even have consciousness when we sleep. We have, we have sleeping consciousness and we have waking consciousness. And sometimes if we're knocked out, we don't have a consciousness. But when we're knocked out and don't have consciousness, nothing else works. So we're going to assume that these two things are working fine. And we're going to assume that the I, the form of the I, comes in contact with the form of the water bottle and a pleasant sensation arises on this rudimentary consciousness. Out of this consciousness comes sensation. That's the beginning of of our self, and that's the beginning of our suffering. So, how many forms of sensation do we experience? We experience three forms of sensation. We experience pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral. Okay, so what does that do? That sensation stimulates stimulates perception. Now, perception is really cool, and it took me a while to sort of figure this out and fully understand it, but perception is what we do when we come in contact with something. We name it. We can't understand it unless we can name it. Otherwise, it's just it. Otherwise, it's just Zen, and you have choiceless awareness. But we want to have a specific awareness so we can satisfy that sensation. See, that sensation is giving us a signal. It says either grasp, attach, or push away, have aversion. So now we have a pleasant sensation, and we have to name the water bottle. And so how did that naming get in there? 
Well, it started with our parents after our birth. They started to give us a bunch of words, which turned out to be sounds, that they applied to certain forms that really had nothing in common with the sound itself. So we have the word chair, and then we have the form of chair. And the word chair has nothing at all to do with the form of the chair, other than those two need to be connected so we can understand what a chair is and how to use the chair to our advantage. If we can't name it, we can't use it. And the chair will just sit there for eternity being unsaddened because we don't know what it is. We can marvel at the chair's complexity and the touch and the color. But there it sits, useless. So now we've been given these words, many words. I posted something yesterday. I'm getting good at Facebook. I posted something (laughs) yesterday. Synonym. Synonym means a word you can spell when you can't spell the original word. So you go, okay, yeah. I find myself faced with that all the time. Thank gosh for Google, you know. So we have this, these words coming in, parents, and then they send us to school. Whoa, and they just want to cram all this stuff in our head. They want to make us like everybody else, you know? And I really didn't like school at all. I didn't like school. I don't know why that I was so against school, but I didn't like the whole learning experience. It always hurt, literally, physically and emotionally. It hurt to learn. Because I had all these other paradigms or models, and they had paradigm clashes all the time. I knew it to be this way, and they said, no, it's that way, and I had to you know, go in there and move things around. And, and, and there was so much emphasis in my family on getting well-educated because it was the kind of thing you need to succeed in life. And, and, and it probably is. I agree. But there are a lot of people who have succeeded in life who weren't very well-educated but were really smart and sort of understood how it all worked without being told how it was supposed to work. Then we have these concepts of, like, America. Man, you kidding me? What the hell is that? I'm thinking, you know, is it, is it California? Is that America? Is it all the states together? Maybe Puerto Rico is a territory. Is it that part? Is that America? Is it all the Republicans and Democrats? Is that what makes America? Is it the capital? What part? Where is the essence? Where can I find the heart of America? The soul of America. Where does it exist? It has no... Soul, it has no place, it does not exist other than in our own head. And, and so America is just sight and sound and taste and touch, you know, smell. It's just all those little sense store responses to the environment that creates America in our head. And I'm watching the news and I'm watching the political advertisements and I'm reading the internet and I'm finding all these people telling me what America is and how it's supposed to be, and what it should be, and what it could be. And I'm going, whoa, this is so much stuff. As I sit in my little room and not recognize the person that comes to the door. Who are you? I'm from America. (laughs) Oh, hi. (laughs) So we have all these concepts, and they're always changing because we have new information coming in all the time. We have science, and science's job is to create new information for us. 
And then we have the internet. Whoa, talk about information overload. You know, anything you want. I can find out how long Fred McMurray lived. Just go on Google. That is so cool. Absolutely useless, but so cool to have access to that information. And I'm reading a new book, which I can highly recommend. It just came out a couple days ago. It's called The Seventh Sense. The Seventh Sense. It's about, it's about networks and how the world has become one giant complicated network with sub-networks all connecting. And the older people who don't know networks are lost and confused and don't know what the hell is happening. And the new people that do know about networks know exactly what's happening but can't do anything about it. So it's just fascinating. And why was I drawn to that? Why was I drawn to this book? It was just, it was, it was synchronicity uh, at its best. I was watching in the morning, Morning Joe. The author of the book was on Morning Joe. It looked like an interesting book. It seemed to be more about politics and business than, than spirituality. It wasn't even out yet. I had to wait two days, and I went on Amazon, Kindle, you know, immediate gratification. Yeah, okay, there it was. And it said, you know, this is really a cool book, and it's all about, you know, the new economy and the politics and war and peace and all of those things. So I said, well, this might be interesting because I like the concept of networks. So I, I, I bought the book and had it in my possession just 30 seconds later. And the whole first part of the book is about this old Zen master in China who was giving these seminars to political and business leaders all over the world. They, they go to his retreat center and he talks about interconnection and interdependence. Oh, man, that's Buddhism, I figured out. And they're applying Buddhism to the world now. And, they're, you know, and, of course, they're using the code word network, so we don't have to look at it as a religious concept. And I'm going, yeah, you know, Ken Wilbur did the exact same thing. He was able to explain how all things everywhere were interconnected and interdependent. That just blew my mind, that whole concept. I'm still trying to grasp his model, but he's included everything and how they're all connected. And what happened to me a couple years ago was an epiphany, an insight in my meditation practice, and I came to realize that nirvana and enlightenment are two different things. And nirvana is the end of suffering, and nirvana is the end of karma, and the Nirvana is the end of all future rebirths, so we'll never have to face birth and death again. But that's not enlightenment. Enlightenment is totally different. And all of us have access to that every day. But most of us wouldn't understand it if it happened because we weren't practicing and getting ready for the experience. So, my definition of enlightenment is the direct experience of the interconnectedness and interdependence of all phenomena. The direct experience of the giant network. Whoa, man, can you imagine just sort of, you know, being out to lunch and having that tuna fish sandwich? And bang, you get to see how all things are interconnected and interdependent. Even unrelated things are affecting each other in some subtle, below-the-surface way. And if you could really see that, what would that do for your future outlook on everything? Business, relationship, 
practice. Because you saw how all things are connected. And blind to most people, but to you it's evident. So you went over and you, and you bought this and that happened. Or you didn't buy this and that happened. And now you sort of understand that you're part of that interconnection and interdependent, and that you do not live separately. It is an illusion created by precepts, perception. We perceive things separately, as a separate entity. So we can use them and understand them. But this enlightenment thing is coming to the experience of all things are connected, and we are too. And that's why that couple that broke up, remember I said help them pack? They're always going to be connected, whether they want to or not at some level. And what we do here today in this little building on Melrose affects the whole world. And we don't see it and we don't know it. But there are some individuals who have experienced enlightenment more than once or twice and they are aware of the subtleties that affect every network. And oftentimes can use that to their advantage And what do we call those people? We call them bodhisattvas. They're out there changing the world because of the way they understand the connection. Cool. So the five aggregates, let's get back to that. We've just discovered enlightenment and nirvana, and now we've got the five aggregates, and we're waiting for self to arise. So the perception, the perception of what we are now experiencing rattles through our head and that we now understand it because we can name it. But now we have to interact with it. And those are the sankharas, those are the habit patterns that have come to exist because of education and experience. And rather than responding to everything all day long, which is really time-consuming and really hard, I find just reacting is so much simpler. Just reacting. You turn the faucet on and you turn it off. You know, and you don't have to think about it. You've done it 2,000 times just last year. And now you're going to do it again. And so you just do it and you're like mind, you're sleeping. You're mind sleeping and you just don't even pay attention. And you go, wow, okay. How easy is life now? But then when you start to wake up and you start to see you're doing everything all the time for the first time. Then it gets to be challenging, and then you can be creative. You don't have to turn on the faucet the same way all the time. Why not use your left hand occasionally? Just to see what it's like. Just to change it. Just to see if you react the same way to it. And you know what? You don't. If you always turn the faucet on with your right hand, and now you do it with your left hand, you become a different person turning on that faucet. And that faucet will respond to you in a different way. I know you don't think it's the case, but give it a try today. Just turn on the faucet with your left hand. See how it feels. You're breaking the patterns. You're becoming free, a free man, a free woman, because now you can use both hands to turn on the faucet. You're not restricted because that's the way you've always done it. Every time we do anything, it's the first time, and that's what's so hard with this world that we live in, because it's always the first time, and we have to keep re-educating ourselves, and not just do it because it's a habit, but do it because we are present in the moment with that. Okay, so we have all these habit patterns, Sankara. So now, here we go. Form, sensation, 
perception, volition, and consciousness. Now that's out of order. That's the way I read it and memorized it. So it goes like this. Form and consciousness. Nama Rupa, name and form. Okay. Sensation, pleasant, unpleasant, neutral. Naming, perception. Naming it, understanding it, understanding how it's used. Volition, activity, our active response, our active reaction to the situation. We pick up the bottle, we open it, we drink, we close it, we put it back down. All volition. But it happened because we had perception and had an identifiable object that we could work with that was separate from us. That was not us. That's the relative reality that Buddhism talks about. But the ultimate reality is we are connected to that bottle, always have been, always will be, no matter where it goes or what it does. We are connected to everything all the time. And if that's the case, we do not exist in the way we think we do. And so our job needs to be to go from self to not self. We don't want to kill the self. Self is our friend. Self is who we are. And we can't live in the world without being who we are, you know? And if we lose that self because of accident or disease, we can't function anymore. We need 24-hour care because we are not separate. We have gone back into the mesh, into the weave. Okay. So here we go. So how do we go from self to not self? Eight easy steps. You knew this. <laughs> you knew this was going to come. <laughs> it's the Buddha's birthday. The eightfold path. That's how you do it. You, first, you understand suffering. Then you understand the eight different ways you suffer. And then you come to a place in your life where you say, I do not want to suffer again. I am tired of suffering. I have suffered my whole life. I've always wanted things to be different than they are. Why can't I just accept the world the way it is? And yes, I can if I do this eightfold path. So now it starts, okay, if I'm going to become not self, I have to find a way to exist in the world and not kill people. So maybe the precepts would be a good place to start. Maybe this would be the foundation or the anchor to becoming not self. Because there have been cases when people have reached the level of not self and been really uncompassionate, no kindness, big jerks, doing whatever they want to do, thinking they have permission because now they have transcended the, the cultural norms. They are unique. They are all seeing and all knowing. So they can have sex with 12 students. Whoa, really? Is that what enlightenment is? No, that's what spring is. That's not enlightenment. So enlightenment is being kind. Enlightenment is not overstepping. Don't create suffering for others because of what you do and what you say and how you think. And the five precepts gives us a great foundation for our speech and our action. So, we all know what they are. Not to kill, not to steal, no sexual misconduct, not to lie, not to consume intoxicants. Those five things become the foundation of not-self. Okay? Now we have to find a livelihood that doesn't promote suffering. 
That's difficult because we need to make money. We need to live. We need to do something. And sometimes the things that cause the most suffering pay the best. So we have a choice to make. What's our path? You know, and ironically, no matter how much we make, we still end up in the same six-foot box. You know, and then our kids or relatives fight over what's left behind. So, can I exist in this very complicated and expensive Los Angeles area and find a way to do it and not create suffering, but maybe create less suffering? And yes, we can, but it takes work. And not all those places are hiring all the time. So you may have to do something like being a bartender for a while. And there's nothing wrong with being a bartender, I have to say that, other than you are creating heedlessness and they may suffer more because of what you've served them. But you were only serving them what they wanted. Yes, I know, but we have come to a place in our practice now where we want to reduce suffering, not increase it. So being a bartender would be okay until you find something else that maybe would reduce suffering. Okay. Now we come to this meditation part, and we've got two places, two kinds of meditation, samatha meditation and vipassana meditation. We want insight, and we want tranquility. We don't want to go crazy when we start to wake up and see how cruel and strange the world really is, because we've been creating it through our delusion and our ignorance. And now we're going to push our delusion and the ignorance aside and come to the true nature, the true reality of us. And you know what? It's just, it's not much. It's not, it's not a whole lot of stuff to be attached to. There's like, there's like five sense doors, you know, and then thinking. So we look out into the world and we hear it and see it and smell it and taste it and touch it. That's the world. I mean, it's not romantic at all. It's not even poetic. It's just, you know, sight, sound, taste, smell, and touch. And you go, man, that's me? Well, it's what you do with it. That's you. And what have you been doing it with? You've been creating desire and clinging and attachment and aversion and disappointment and suffering. Oh, all those things have been creating. You've been creating those things out of those sense door experiences. And now is your chance not to change the sense doors, but to change the way you respond to the sense door information. To change the world because the world exists in you, not out there. It's your choice. You can do it. Okay, so now you're meditating and you're cultivating and you're seeing you're filled with all this greed and hatred and delusion that doesn't ever go away. And that directs you and causes you to attach and have aversion. And you say, okay, these are the poisons the Buddha talked about. And if I can get rid of these poisons or if I can transform them through the alchemy of the Eightfold Path, into generosity and compassion and wisdom, then I will not have to suffer in the way I have always suffered because they have been the driving forces in my life. You go, okay, I can do this now. And now you start to practice your meditation and you have fewer driving forces and you have better driving forces. And now you come to the wisdom aspect, which is right view and right intention. So you look at the world and understand the world as being encapsulated by the Four Noble Truths. That, that that becomes the way you look at the world. It's just the Four Noble Truths. Not a good world. It's not a bad world. It's just, you know, the world is suffering. Suffering because of desire. 
the end of suffering and the way to the end of suffering. That's your world. That's become the meaning of your life. You have chose the meaning of your life. I'm going to use suffering as my reference point. And first I was suffering, and then I understood that, and now I'm going to end my suffering, and now I understand that. And it can be true because I can follow the Eightfold Path, and it's worked for many, many people, both men and women, for 2,600 years, and it can work for me too, but I need to be able to see the world as the Four Noble Truths. Now, this is really difficult, but Buddhism is a really big hat. I can remember being on a retreat once, and I saw the hats of people. They all had hats on, which is what happens after two days of meditation. You know, you just start hallucinating. And everybody had these little hats on. And, and some people had like little small hats, you know, and those were the experts, you know. They only had a very small way of looking at the world. And then you saw people with bigger hats. Wow, and those were like, you know... They were the philosophers, you know, and they sort of they got all the other stuff together. And then you had the religious people, and their hats were even bigger than the philosophers' hats. And then you had the Buddhist hat, and that was the biggest one of all, because that included everything. All things are interconnected and interdependent. When I saw those Buddhist hats walking around, I said, I want one of those. That's what I want to wear. I want to wear the Buddhist hat and just see the world through the, through the lens of Buddhism. And, and I can understand that it will ultimately reduce my suffering because that's what it's for. And it will ultimately reduce the suffering of others because that's what it's for. So ever since then, I've been trying to wear the hat of Buddhism, and sometimes it works. And those are the best days I have when I have the big Buddhist hat on. But sometimes it's like a little hat, you know, like a white guy. Well, you know, the white guy hat in Koreatown? Not so good. I got to be bigger. I got to change the white guy hat into the human hat. Include more people. And, and, and then you have the gender hat, the guy hat, you know, which has these sort of sharp edges and tilted to the side, you know, looking good, attitude. You know. <laughs> well, you know, you got to make that hat into a little, maybe like a bonnet or something, and just include more, you know, both genders. You know, and go, okay, yeah. Human again. Human again. Okay. So I find living in Koreatown, I live with a bunch of humans. That requires a bigger hat. It allows me to see things in a different way, in a more skillful way, in a way that perhaps reduces suffering rather than increases suffering. So if I become too specific, too much of an expert, too many opinions, too many preferences, I suffer. Nobody else suffers because they just walk away when I start talking. <laughs> they don't care. They just realize it's just Kusala and his opinions. But I carry those with me, and I say, no, I've got to get rid of these. I've got to leave them behind. I want to walk into the world and not know. But see, that can be a problem, too, when you answer the door. I don't know who you are. <laughs> you know, I'm trying to be everything all the time. I don't want to be specific. So it can be challenging, this Buddhist path, but it can end our suffering. And yesterday, 2,600 years ago, the reason we can end our suffering is because the Buddha made it optional. And we can choose that option. Oh, that's good. I think I've said what I needed to say. 
Does anybody have any comments or questions on what I've said? Any opinions about what I've said? Yes? Why have aggregates? Have they they're been uh, linear? <coughs> they, they go in that water, like form, Okay, one more. No, in the order that I used, it, it, it's to explain it, to give you a, an example of the aggregates. Um, and, and the interesting thing is, I was reading, when we achieve nirvana, which I haven't, the aggregates still arise. Those don't go away. That's why the Buddha was a human until he passed away. But what does go away is our attachment and aversion. So it's the aggregates arising with no attachment and no aversion and no suffering and not self. So it's, they're creating something new because we have worked on that creation and, and succeeded. Does that make sense? Yeah, good. That's the best answer. Yes, sir. Uh, if we're, uh, what about grasping for non-suffering? I mean, is that... That's a problem. That's a problem. Yeah. Because the grasping for non-suffering means you want things to be different than they are. And, and it prevents you from getting it. So it's difficult when you first start out on this path and you say, I want enlightenment, I want nirvana. And you're doing everything you can to go in that direction, but all the things you're doing are preventing you from achieving it because they're based on desire and clinging and opinion and craving. So after a while, it seems to me, we just do it without any uh, hope for uh, completion or goal. We just do it. And the the Zen phrase, chop wood, carry water. You're, You're not chopping wood to chop wood, you're just chopping wood. But see, that's really hard because we haven't been taught how to do that. We've been taught to have a plan and a goal. And that's the way we achieve everything in our life. So this is a way of achieving something with no plan and no goal. And we get started with a plan and we get started with a goal. And then gradually, as we continue the path, we let those fall away. And eventually, we're just doing what we do. And ultimately, it happens. We don't know when, and we won't even know why, because we haven't really figured it out. But that's good. We don't want to figure it out. Isn't it odd? You know, it's an odd way of of either having a religion or having a life practice, you know? And then ultimately, we don't even want to be a Buddhist anymore, because being a Buddhist requires us to be something and be a certain way. We have to let that go, too. You know, so we can let all the stuff go, and then whatever's left, that's it. But it takes many lifetimes to let it all go and become the no man with the not self. <laughs> so good. Okay. Well, I think we've done it. I think we've made it happen today. Thank you all for participating with me because we're all interconnected and interdependent and it wouldn't have happened without you. Let's do a loving-kindness meditation and call it a Sunday, which is just another concept, isn't it? (laughs)
May those of us who have come together today in mind and heart be happy, peaceful, and free from suffering. May no harm come to us. May no difficulties come to us. May no problems come to us. May we always find fulfillment. May we also have patience, courage, understanding, and determination to meet and overcome the inevitable difficulties, problems, and failures in life. May the suffering ones be suffering free, the fear-struck fearless be. May the grieving shed all grief, may the sick find health relief.